All right, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 today. If you've got your Bible close, go ahead and uh, flip there and get ready. We're going to be picking it back up in the verses that we actually went through last week. Uh, and we'll just continue on and actually close out chapter 2 today. But we'll be able to see the entire confrontation between Paul and Peter uh, in, in the fullness of its context. And I think we'll be able to gain from that. So, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get... Get your finger in Galatians 2 and let's just get started. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. I stole that quote from Tim Keller. Let me read to you what he says in, uh, in its fullness. Belief in the gospel is not just the way to enter the kingdom of God. It is the way to address every obstacle and grow in every aspect. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. The gospel is the way that anything is renewed. And transformed by Christ, whether a heart, a relationship, a church, or a community. All our problems come from a lack of orientation to the gospel. Put positively, the gospel transforms our hearts, our thinking, and our approach to absolutely everything. The gospel is not just a first rung on the ladder. See, Tim Keller's helping us see it's not just that first rung on the ladder or the doorway into Christian life. The gospel is not the first step on the stairway to heaven, and then after that, other things follow. The gospel is the central theme of all of Christian life. There's no moving away from it. And when we do, we find ourselves moving into the very inconsistent thoughts that Peter demonstrated in Antioch, in his inconsistent thought and action. And Paul, in this confrontation with Peter, Paul wasn't just confronting Peter because he could. It wasn't like Paul sat down and thought, you know what, I can embarrass that guy. I can set myself up in front of the church. I can make him look like a fool and me look like the hero. I don't think that's what Paul was doing. I think the reasons become evident in the, in the rest of the context of this passage. And today, as these details, as the details of Paul confronting Peter continue, continue to unfold, I think we'll begin to see Paul begin to unpack the doctrine of the gospel, kind of as he changes gears from sharing testimony to beginning to prepare to share doctrinally about what the gospel's about. But more importantly, I think that in this moment of correction, in this moment of correction, and I think the reason that Peter, or I'm, I'm sorry, I think the reason that Paul is sharing this with the Galatians is because he's beginning to show them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that central message that should inform our lives, not just for that initial moment of faith, but it should inform our lives of faith and practice consistently all the way out, all the way through. And when Peter and the others were going astray, this is what he did. With authority, man, when, when Peter and the others were, were, were screwing it up, when they were messing it up and they were living legalistically, with authority, the gospel was what Paul called them all back in line with and called them all back in line to. You see, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ was what he was using them to call them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It informs every area of our life. And I think that's what we begin to see. I think that's ultimately why he shared this with the Galatians. Let's just read the verses and just see where we get to today. But when Cephas came to Antioch, this is verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. 
But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray. And here's the heart of the problem, the heart of the issue, the, 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 the source of the confrontation. You see, Peter was a guy who had been freed by the gospel. He was a guy who had experienced God's saving power in his life. And, you know, as we looked at this passage last week, this is what we what we basically focused on was this, this confrontation or this, this conflict, these, the, the picture of these lives out of step with the gospel. Peter being freed by the gospel, but then living legalistically because of the fear of men, which in turn led others astray to live in the fear of men. Peter's actions, what, what was going on here is Peter's actions were, were essentially driving a wedge between the members of the church in Antioch. So essentially what was beginning to happen was these Jewish Christians were beginning to follow Peter and you have these two groups begin to form. You have the Gentile Christians who are not observing the law, who are never given the law, who don't even really know the, the heart of the law. But then you also have these Jewish Christians who are now following the law, beginning to say, to, to, to pull back from these other Christians as if they are not as good, as if they're less Christian or not as worthy in some way. And so here's this big issue beginning to take shape. And the beautiful thing is, is Paul is just the, the guy that Paul is. He, he's not going to stand for it. So this is what happens. But when I saw their conduct, this is Paul speaking, but when I saw their conduct, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. You see, this is this is essentially what, what happened. Paul was committed to the truth of the gospel. And more importantly, not just was he committed to the truth of the message of the gospel, he was committed to the to the Jesus of the gospel. And because Jesus meant so much to him, and Jesus had, had, had changed his life so radically, Paul was committed to the mission and message that Jesus had given him. And he wouldn't stand for it. And so when he saw that, that the lives that Peter and these other Jewish Christians were living was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he didn't stand for it and he confronted Peter. And by extension, he confronted the Jews that, and Barnabas that were acting like Peter. And now because he wrote it to the, to the letter, to the, in the letter to the churches of Galatia, he's confronting the churches of Galatia. And because now we are reading and studying this, by extension, he's confronting us. You see, the thing is, is that this is something that we all need to be reminded of and at times need to hear. If Peter, a leader in the church, can mess this up, be sure that you and I can mess this up. But he shows them. He, he shows them. And by extension, all that have read it since, he shows us how their lives got out of step with the truth of the gospel. And he does it in this one phrase at the end of verse 14. He says, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, what Paul's really getting at here is he's showing Peter the inconsistency of his actions and his thought. 
what he believes, what Peter believes, is not lining up with what Peter is not lining up with how Peter is acting. What he's doing and what he says he believes are, are, are two different things. And see, then the problem became not only was he doing that in his own life, but the rules that he would inadvertently impose on other people were inconsistent with his own lifestyle. Until the group from Jerusalem showed up, until the group from Jerusalem showed up, here's Peter's life, freed by the gospel, loving it, enjoying it, hanging out with the Gentiles, going to their pig roast, eating bacon with his eggs, you know, just hanging out and being with them. Then they show up. And it kind of begins to go wrong. Because all of a sudden he is beginning to act as if he wasn't doing those things before. He was freed by the gospel. He was freed to live in that way. There was absolutely nothing wrong with it. But out of fear, he draws back and leads other people to do so. But it wasn't just the Jews that, that this affected. He was setting a standard for the Gentile believers in Antioch also. In, in, in effect, this is his message. Hey, when no one's looking, when no one is paying attention, you can come and you can live this life. You can, you can hang out and do whatever you want to do and you can be, be free in this way. Now, obviously, there's, there's, there's lines. You can't sin. There's still things that dishonor God that we can't live. But, but there, there's freedom in the gospel. And you can live in that way. But if somebody starts looking at you, you have to, to wrap up your life in this nice little neat little bow that, that pleases these men and makes you acceptable to them when they're watching. And, that, and that's the message he was sending. Because he was afraid of them. He was afraid of what they might say. Essentially, he was demonstrating for them what they had to do. Essentially, he was demonstrating for the Gentiles and the Jews what they had to do to be made acceptable. And that's inconsistent. That's, that's completely inconsistent with the gospel. Because legalistic thought is inconsistent thought. Legalistic thought is inconsistent thought. The inconsistency of Peter's thought is the same inconsistency of every legalistic thought, of every human-centered thought. And so this is the, this is the issue at hand. And, and it's so normal for us to do this. It's so normal for us to set these standards up in our own mind and then fail to keep them ourselves, but then hold others accountable to them. Hold others accountable to, to this thought of what a good Christian looks like, even though we don't always measure up. See, I had some good friends that were growing in their understanding of the gospel, uh, in their understanding of theology and doctrinal positions, and I, I think this would illustrate this point well. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's current. It, it's still happening. This this is still a problem. But they were growing in their positions and understanding of theology and doctrine. And, and, and they were growing rapidly. I mean, there was good things happening in their life. But one area in particular was, was their view of salvation. For most of their life, for most of their Christian life, they had held a view of, of salvation that was completely dependent upon their choice and acceptance of God. They believed that they had to choose to accept God. Now then, as they're studying, they begin to see in the scriptures verses like from Ephesians where it talks about being, being um, uh, chosen from before the foundations of the world. Jesus' words that says, 
he chose them, not I chose you, you didn't choose me, those, those kinds of things. And they begin to adopt this view of salvation that was more dependent upon God's choice and acceptance of them. So here we go, two views of salvation, both within Christian orthodoxy, because they're both centered around the cross and both dependent upon Jesus Christ for his work in, 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 in the cross. I choose and accept God's gift. Or God chooses and accepts me, and so that makes me saved. And, and that's the two views. And that's the, that's the way they were picturing it. That's the way they were living life. And here's the deal. As soon as they began to adopt that, that, that new view of salvation, what they did was begin to discount teachers that they had listened to for most of their Christian life who God had used to teach them and really bring, this, bring them to this point where they could begin to see and understand this, this depth of theology and doctrine. They began to discount them. They began to separate in their lives from people who didn't see things the same way they did. They began to act as if they were better and more acceptable because they're new doctrine. Here's the, here's the interesting or ironic thing about that. If you, if you ask me, this is ironic. This new view that they hold, this new view that God accepted them right where they were without anything that they ever did, God chose and accepted them before they were ever even born, demands that it had absolutely nothing to do with them. It had absolutely nothing to do with their efforts or their own work. And so in that, in, in, in that view of salvation, it frees us to not, to not live by some set of standards or rules to measure up, but it frees us to live in the grace that's been freely given by God, not based on our choice, not based on our actions, not based on our efforts, but based completely and solely on his choice and his acceptance. But ironically, what they were beginning to do was set up a rule of their own, that they were more acceptable. Because of their new view. That people that didn't see things the way they did were less acceptable. They weren't quite as good a Christian. They, they, were, they, were, they were less Christian. And so they said they took this idea of a free, uh, unmerited gospel. And they built laws around it. And their thought became very inconsistent with what the message was really teaching them. That's what legalism does. Legalism leads us to inconsistency. Legalism and, 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 and human-centered thought leads us to inconsistent thought and belief and action. But it's not just Christian people that do this. It's, it's not just Christian people that screw it up. I mean, some of the worst legalists you could ever meet are people that have never been made alive by the Spirit. The reason is they don't have any other hope but the one thing, the, the things that they can do and the ways that they can make themselves acceptable or, or the things that they have power to change. The only hope is what they have and what they can do, how they perform, how they measure up what standard they meet. That's the only hope they have. And so they're very legalistic because all they have is what their rules and standards and measurements tell them they have. But this inconsistency, it's driven out of our flesh. It's driven out of the same sinfulness that we so desperately need to be saved from. 
The only answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way we will ever be able to overcome these inconsistencies is to be in step with the truth of the gospel. And thankfully, Paul here continues that message. And he calls Peter and these Jews back in line and back out of their inconsistency, back in line to the, to the truth of the gospel. And we can benefit from this as well. Because really our inconsistencies, while they may be different, the inconsistencies of our thought and action are something we battle against all the time. And they're driven out of the same place. And they may be different, but it's the same sinfulness. It's that same, that same source that drives these inconsistencies in our lives. And it requires the same answer. So today, I mean, I hope that's the answer you find. I hope that that's the message you'll hear. Bring yourself, find yourself in step with the truth of the gospel. And if not, repent and come back to it. Let's keep reading verses. We'll pick it up in verse 15. See, we ourselves, listen, I mean, this is all in context. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And what he's saying is this, and get this, Paul is not picking on Gentiles as he calls them sinners. What he's, what he's saying to Peter is this. We're Jews by birth. We have all the advantage when it comes to, comes to God. I mean, we have, we have it all. We have the prophets. We have the law. We have the covenant. We have the patriarchs. We have, we have this history, this lineage. We, we, we have it all. If anybody should have gotten salvation, if anyone should have understood salvation, the Jews should have understood salvation. For their entire history, from the moment that God first entered into covenant with them, they had substitutionary sacrifice for the payment of sin. They understood the, the absolute uh, judgment of God. They understood the condemnation of God apart from a substitutionary sacrifice. They understood that they stood condemned. But they also understood that God would accept a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for or cover their sin. They got it. They understood it. This was their history. This was their lineage. They had the prophets who, who proclaimed the truth that one day God would send the perfect sacrifice, who one day God would settle all the accounts in this one man. They had it. They, they had the covenant. They had the identity. They had the the, 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 the holiness before God because of their lineage as a Jew. They had it. They, they, weren't, they weren't separated from God as Gentiles. They weren't, they weren't uncovered by atoning sacrifices in their covenants. Yet, yet, he says, and, and really what he's saying is, but, but that wasn't enough. And in verse 16, what he really does in verse 16, if you're memorizing with me, you you you'll recognize he says the same thing over three times, over again, three times, and each time it's slightly different. We know, yet we know, person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's what I think he wants to say. This, I think, is the point that Paul is trying to get across here, that, that Paul wants us to get. People aren't justified by works of the law. Not only should we understand that, but Peter and the rest of these Jews, they'd already figured, out, figured it out. They had everything in their corner, all of their history, their lineage, their sacrifices, their, their, their patriarchs, their prophets, their law, their, the scriptures. They, they, they had it. But they had understood this. No one is justified by the works of the law. And so just like the Gentiles, the Jews had to come to this place where they trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, that the works of the law didn't do it. No one is justified by works of the law, but only by the Spirit. I want you to consider Paul in this. As he's making this argument, I want you to consider him. I mean, of all the people, of all the people that can make this argument and say this, and Paul, he's a great illustration of this just himself. Paul was the one making the argument in his letter to the Philippians. He points out that who he was in his life in Judaism. Now, he's already done that in this letter to the Galatians. It's not that he didn't ever talk about this to the Galatians. Obviously, he did. In the first chapter, he tells them you know, that, that he was uh, seeking to persecute the church of God violently and destroy it. He was... He, he was uh, advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age among his people. So extremely zealous was he for the traditions of his fathers. But he really breaks it out in his letter to the Philippians and lets us know who he was as a Jew. And he lets us know that if anyone could have saved themselves by their own efforts, he was the one that could have done it. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anyone could have saved themselves, it was Paul. He was so extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers that he was sold out to them, that he was, not only did he have the lineage, but that lineage led him to act in a certain way. And under the law, he was blameless. He, he had so much zeal that he tried to kill people. He trusted so deeply in this way of, of life that he was killing people for it. This was his life. If anyone could have ever saved himself, he said it was him. But God shows up in his life, helps him see that it wouldn't work. And as the passage continues in Philippians, he says, but I counted it all loss. In fact, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. In fact, the word he uses, he doesn't just call it loss. He calls it rubbish. He calls it trash. He calls it a pile of manure. Nothing even came close in comparison to the right answer. Jesus Christ. So Karl Barth, commenting on Paul's autobiography, Okay, let me spit this out. Autobiographical confession in Philippians 3. Karl Barth says this. This is summarizing Paul's words. The heights on which I stood are abysmal. The assurance in which I lived is lostness. The light I had, darkness. 
It is not that nil take the place of the plus, but the plus itself changes to a minus. Get this and understand it. Get this. We don't even break even when it comes to the gospel. We don't even break even when we stand in front of God trying to, to hold up our own efforts and our own works. We don't even break even. The plus changes to a minus. The very heights in the, the, which we can stand are still deep in the chasm. The thing that we call light is really dark. We are lost. See, this is the first point of the gospel. The first point of the gospel is to recognize our own inadequacy. We have to join Paul in recognizing that all we have is rubbish in comparison to the value of Jesus Christ. Nothing else even comes close. Luther points out striving to rely on our own works for salvation is heaping sin upon sin, and it's a mockery to God. I mean, this is, this is what it is. This is what it is. I mean, imagine yourself standing in a garbage dump. You're, you're in, a, you're in a, a garbage dump, and the truth is that's your life and your efforts. And when you stand and try to present yourself to God as acceptable by your own merits, it's as if you're standing on the highest Heap in that garbage dump. The reality is you're still in the garbage dump and you're leaning down and you're picking up the garbage around you and holding it up as if in some way someone wants that rubbish, that trash, that garbage. See, this, this point isn't just a point that matters as we enter into salvation by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the first point of the gospel, absolutely. But this is the truth that resounds at every step along the way. Every step along the way, we are inadequate of ourselves. We are inadequate in our own power. And, and, and this, it was, it was this very first thing that Peter needed to be reminded of. His actions before these legalists did not gain him greater standing before God. But in fact, it was as if he was standing on the trash heap of his own life holding up the trash of his life and saying, look at what I've done. It may look like silver and gold to us, but in comparison to Jesus Christ, it is trash. It is rubbish. And by ourselves, we are inadequate. The gospel demands us to find our justification by faith in Christ. That's what these verses are getting at. It, it, the, the law won't do it. Your efforts won't do it. Your actions won't do it. The gospel demands us to find our justification by faith in Christ. Now let's break that down because there's usually, we're using some words that, that some of you may not understand. And sometimes even people who have been believers for a long time don't get this. But let's break it down. What is justification? Justification, simply put, is being found innocent or without guilt. And when God justifies us, it's not as though he's making us sinless in the sense that he removes all offense or ability to offend or even the desire to offend. We, we recognize that as Christians, we still struggle with this sinful flesh and we still struggle with sin and we still have a desire to sin and rebel. We, we, we still have these motivations, we still have these temptations, and we still cave in and fall to it. 
But in fact, what this says is that justification says that when God looks at us, he doesn't see that sin. You see, this is what Peter was struggling with. Peter, as, as he's acting inconsistently, he is succumbing to the fear of these Jews. He's acting sinfully, and his actions are inconsistent with the gospel because he still is struggling with sin. He's not looking for his justification or innocence from Jesus anymore, but rather from the approval of a group of legalists from Jerusalem. And what it means that God justifies us is that he no longer sees that guilt. He no longer looks at us as guilty. So when he saw Peter, even though Peter was acting sinfully, even though Peter was, was living like an idiot and doing stupid stuff, and even though there are days in our lives when you and I are acting like idiots and doing stupid stuff and, and succumbing to the sinful desires of our flesh, when God looks at us because we are justified, he sees no sin. He's called us innocent. He has said, you are not guilty. But it's not because of what we can do or what we can continue to do. But because of what Jesus has already done. The gospel demands that we look to Jesus and trust in Jesus for our justification. Justification comes through faith, not the law. It's three times in verse 16. In, in three different ways, slightly different ways, Paul lets us know that the work of the law will not lead to justification or innocence before God. But faith does. Faith is so much more than just simple intellectual knowledge of something. There are all kinds of things we can possibly know that have no bearing on our lives, but it goes so much further. And the Protestant reformers taught that a true faith was seen in three parts. Knowledge, intellectual assent, and reliance or trust. And so, so what they said is to have faith in Jesus, you had to have knowledge of Jesus. You had to know who he is. You had to know what he was about, what he did. You had to have knowledge of it. You had to intellectually assent that it was true. Okay, I know about Jesus, and yes, it's true. I believe I think it's right. I think the story is true. I think this is this is a, a true statement. And here's the thing. What they noticed was in the scriptures that if this is all you have, if you have the knowledge and intellectual assent, that, yeah, I know who Jesus is, and yeah, I believe that he is who he says he is, that those two things, they say, aren't real saving faith. In fact, they point to the scriptures that demonstrate that the, that the demons already acted in that way. That, that in, in, all of, in, in the whole scope of things, that if all you have is knowledge and intellectual assent, that you're no better than the demons. You see, when Jesus was walking the face of the earth and those demons were, were, were possessing people, they acted respectfully. They, they knew who Jesus was. They, they acted in a way that... that uh, demonstrated their, their sub submission to him. They acted in a way that they knew and understood and really knew. They, they knew that Jesus was who he said he was. They acted in fear of him and they responded to him. They obeyed him. And what they say is that the ticket is having that intellectual assent, that knowledge and that intellectual assent, but then coming around and relying on it for your life. Relying on it, trusting in it, 
in his work alone as our means of salvation, recognizing that only he can save us. Only he can bring justification. Only he can bring to us that innocence before God. Only Jesus can do this. See, it's not so much, though, what we have to be careful of is it's not so much the size of our faith. It's not so much our reliance, our, our knowledge and intellectual ascent and, 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 and how great we are at relying on Jesus. It's not the size of our faith or the quality of our faith or the maturity of our faith, but rather it's the object of our faith. If our faith in any way turns around back on itself and says, my faith is so strong, Jesus saved me. My faith is so mature, Jesus saved me. My faith, my faith. If it ever turns around back on itself and it becomes an object of itself, if it's our faith that truly saves us, if it's our faith that, that becomes the object and the power of our salvation, then we've missed it. And we move back into inconsistent thought. The object of our faith is really the measure of our faith. Our faith must be totally laid upon Jesus Christ. Our faith must be pointed at him. He must be the object of it. He must be the thing that we're trusting in. He must be the one that's bringing us justification. He must be the object and, and, the, and the source of the power that brings faith meaning. Honestly, the consistency of our own faith isn't as important as the object of our faith. See, our faith is only as good as what we place it in. And only one is able to fulfill the requirements. His name is Jesus Christ. When his name is Jesus, his title is Christ. Jesus is the only object of faith that belongs or that brings justification. I'm sorry. Jesus is the only object of faith that brings justification. You see, it's all about his innocence. It's all about his faithfulness. It's all about his payment of our debt. It's his acceptance of God's wrath in our place. It is his work on the cross in our place for our sin. It is his right standing before God. It is his victory over sin. It is his resurrection that brings life. It is all his. And God says, as we turn our faith towards him, as we trust in Jesus alone, as we bring this empty faith that has no foundation other than Jesus Christ, we place it upon him. He will fill it with all blessings. It's as if we're standing now on the trash heap of our life and no longer standing to pick up our, our, our junk that's around us and we are holding up our hands empty, trusting in Jesus Christ and that God would fill those hands full of his blessings. And see, he'll look at us, guilty, dirty, sinful creatures. And as our faith turns and points itself to Jesus Christ, as we turn and our faith is placed in Jesus Christ, he then begins to see us clean and innocent and recognize our transgression anymore. He will not recognize our sin anymore. In fact, the Bible tells us that he separates it as far as the east is from the west. And he says, you are innocent. You are sinless. You are justified. Because that's what faith in Jesus Christ brings, justification. That's the great exchange. What Jesus 
was is given to us and what we were is taken on by Jesus and is nailed to the cross and swallowed up in his death. Jesus Christ hanging on the cross in our place for our sins hands to us his righteousness and takes from us our sinfulness so that as God now looks at us, he sees us sinless. He sees us by, by the cross of Christ cleansed. Jesus Christ taking that shame and sin from us. Let's keep reading. See what he says. But if in our endeavor to be justified, this is verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. See, what Paul's pointing out here, he, he kind of interjects this thought. What is uh, maybe something that someone, he's, he's thinking of an objection that someone in his audience might be thinking, or someone might have actually said it as he's confronting Peter with this truth. He is, he, it's possible that, that someone actually objected with this comment, but it may be that he just is thinking of what they could object with, and now he's asking this question. If this is true, if Jesus Christ is, is justifying us, what happens when we really show ourselves to be sinners? Is Christ in a servant of sin? Absolutely not. There's no way, there's no language he could use at this point to make his negative comment or his negative answer more strong. Certainly not. Absolutely not. There's nothing he could say that could be more negative here. I mean, the, the point is, is he is trying to drive home the idea that Jesus Christ is not a servant of sin. You see, Jesus Christ is no, he's no servant of sin. He's the one who defeated sin, the one who overcomes sin. But if in some way Paul were to turn and begin to trust in the law again, if Paul, who, who, who in his life the law was torn down because of Jesus Christ, if Paul then turns and begins to live to it again, he proves himself to be a transgressor. He would be the one that was serving sin. He'd be the one giving into it. He'd be the one serving it. He would be the one living by it. The same goes for Peter and the rest of the Jews. But that is exactly what they had been doing. They had been freed from the law. And they quit trusting in the law for the right standing before God. And now they were trusting in it again. They were turning back to it, rebuilding it in a sense. But this showed one thing. The depths of their depravity and the necessity of their salvation. They could not do it on their own. But this doesn't make Jesus a servant of sin. Rather, it proves our absolute need for dependence on him. He's the overcomer. He's the victor. We need to trust in him. And this is the truth that we must always be reforming and reframing our minds to. We must always be coming back to this truth. These are the basics. We stand innocent not because of what we can do well or because of what we can do right or because of what we can do in any way. We are innocent because through faith in Jesus Christ, God takes his right standing and gives it to us. And Jesus takes on our sin and bears the consequence or the wrath for it. This is the basic message of the gospel. And we must always be being brought back to it. We must be coming back to it to continue in or to rebuild some other train of thought or, or some other thinking that in some way now we've become acceptable because of what we've done. It just proves our faults even further and our need of someone to save us from ourselves. 
this, this truth, this, this idea, this idea that we can some way, in some way believe the gospel and be brought into God's acceptance, but then turn and begin to offer God our good works is foolishness. And it's the same inconsistent thought that Peter was being called on. Jesus Christ is the Savior from sin. And if in any way we begin to think that by not going to watch a rated R movie or not saying a cuss word or, 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 or making sure that we're the good father or the good mother or the good husband and wife or the good child or following the Ten Commandments or doing anything in our own power, if in some way we believe that we can hold that up to God as our own offering to him, as if in some way it makes us acceptable to him, then we have proven ourselves to be transgressors and in need of a savior. That's what Paul's saying. Jesus Christ is no servant of sin. He's the Savior from it. For through the law, listen, verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. What Paul is now describing, he's, he's shown us the entryway into the gospel or into the into this new life is the gospel, but he's also showing us that now the gospel is the way to new life, the way to live this new life. He's describing this new life in light of what Jesus has done, in light of his justification or sinless position before God in Christ, in light of this new freedom from the law, he is free to live to God. And that's the gospel, and it's remaining in step with the gospel that makes this possible. Because of the gospel, the law has no power over Paul. Because of the gospel, Paul's new life starts from the cross of Christ. Because of the gospel, Paul's new life has a new focus. You know, Paul, because, because of who Paul was, he had grown up. And he had submitted himself to the law and he was giving himself to the law and he was living by it. And in his own eyes, he was blameless under it. But because of the gospel, it now meant nothing to him. He was dead to the law. The law had no power or authority over him. Because of the gospel, Paul's new life starts from the cross of Christ. Paul's new life is founded on Jesus' work on the cross, that moment in which God took the sin from all of time, the sins past, the sins present, and those sins that would still be committed and place them upon his son. In that moment, that's the foundation of all of Paul's life. It all is founded on the cross. Because of the gospel, Paul's new life has a new focus Paul had been living to the approval of mankind. He had been living to the approval of his rabbis and been measuring himself by a human standard. But now his new focus was a life unto God, a life lived to God because of the gospel. No longer is Paul pursuing the traditions of his fathers, but that has been replaced with the pursuit of Christ. No longer is Paul's zeal driving him to destroy the church, but rather to see it grown and able to thrive. No longer is Paul's hope in, of life in, in his own fulfillment. Sorry, no. No longer is Paul's hope of life in his own fulfillment, 
of the law or his own blamelessness in his own eyes, but it is in Jesus Christ. His life is marked by the handiwork of his creator, and it has become about God's glory. Paul's new life because of the gospel was radically changed. And it wasn't just some moment of conversion on the road to Damascus, but this was his life in, in its fullness. This was his practice in all that he was now doing. It affected everything. Jesus took Paul's sin and nailed it to the cross with him. And now it has been separated from him as far as the east is from the west. As believers in Jesus, this is our story too. This life in Christ, whether it's Paul's or Peter's or those people from Antioch or the Galatians or ours, it's not a free-for-all. It isn't as if in our trust in him it has no bearing on how we now live. This is exactly what Paul is telling these people. Justification comes through faith in Christ and it changes the whole trajectory and tradition of your life. It is, as I explained to you a couple of weeks ago, freedom not being free to be our own gods, but freedom from sin means we are able to free, we are free to live to God. Another way to think of that, orthodoxy of the gospel leads to orthopraxy in life. Orthodoxy of the gospel leads to orthopraxy in life. What that means is a right understanding of the gospel, a right understanding and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation leads to a right way of living. A right understanding of the gospel, orthodoxy of the gospel leads to a right way of living, leads to orthopraxy in life. It changes us. It makes us new in every step of the way. This is the thing that we should be being called back to, reforming and reframing our minds to. It's the basics. And it should affect and it has implications for every area of life. Verse 21, let's keep going, let's finish this out. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The gospel is an expression of God's grace. It's an expression. The gospel is an expression of God's unmerited goodness towards us. There's a perspective today, and it kills me. It, it, it hurts me to even think about it. But there's a perspective today that says Jesus' substitutionary death in our place for our sin is accusing God of the God the Father of divine child abuse. And I guess if you want to believe that you can stand in your trash heap in the midst of your dump, and you can stand there and lift your junk to God and say, I am acceptable to you because of this, then yeah, maybe you don't need the cross. But I'm going to tell you that that will get you nowhere. Justification is by faith in Christ alone. And that position is in Christ alone. That position isn't just that once for all time idea. It is a once and continuing process throughout your life. You remain justified because of the cross of Christ. We cannot save ourselves. We have no efforts or, or no way to, to work this out. We have nothing we can offer to God. We must trust in Jesus Christ alone. If there were some other way than yes, Jesus Christ died for no reason, but this is what I'm telling you. Listen closely. If you think that your efforts and your good works are good enough to get you to heaven, then you have shrunk the power of the cross. 
if you think that in some way that you are good enough to stand before God and honestly tell him he must accept you, then you are removing the beauty from the cross. If you think in some way that, that your right lifestyle or your right living or the standards that you've set for yourself and that you fail in and that you apply to other people, that, that if you think that those things make you acceptable to God, then you have undermined the glory and stolen and robbed the glory of the cross. You must repent from these things. You must turn from them and come back to the gospel. Salvation, justification comes through faith in Christ alone. And there is no other means. Do you want to stand sinless before God? You must trust in Christ. You must trust him alone. He alone will provide you your sinless standing before God. But that's not just for one moment of your life. This is something that continues on and changes the whole trajectory of your life. This changes everything about the way we live. And it's something we must be constantly coming back to and remembering. It's not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of all of our Christian life. We are found sinless in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray.